would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10? Hebrews chapter 10. Beginning in verse 19. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The beginning of this passage is perhaps a bit um, obscure for many of us because uh, it speaks of a pattern of worship that, that the children of Israel practiced at the Lord's direction, and yet it seems perhaps far removed Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, what in the world does that mean for us today? What is, what is the holy place? Well, what's being spoken of here is, is detailed in the previous chapter of Hebrews. If you would turn back a page to chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstands and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there is a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies. This word tabernacle. Is, is something that's not in our everyday language, is it? So what in the world is a tabernacle? Well, is that my phone? No. This must be God. <laughs> no, the, the tabernacle um, was a tent for all intensive purposes, but a very, very special tent designed very specifically for, by God for his people to encounter him. The reason it was a tent is because during the 40 years uh, throughout which the children of Israel wandered in the desert, they needed to actually be able to pack this thing up and take it with them. And so they did throughout those 40 years. This tabernacle was very specially designed. We see here in chapter 9 
the prescription that it was, had two, two spaces, the holy place and then the holy of holies. The holy place was a, a place where the priests came and did their, did their, um, their ritual service uh, throughout the year. But the holy of holies was a very, very special inner court, if you will. It was a place designed for God's presence to dwell. We know that God's presence was with the children of Israel as they wandered through the desert as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And it rested here in the Holy of Holies. It's there in the Holy of Holies that God... um, God's presence was manifest in such a way that he allowed only one person to enter into that space one time a year. We know that person to be the high priest, the high priest of Israel. And one day a year on the year of atonement, and we're going to unpack that word in a little bit, but on the day of atonement, he would enter into that space and he would offer a sacrifice of blood upon what we know as the mercy seat. We're going to read a little further to find out what that is. What is a mercy seat? Having a golden altar of incense, verse 4 of chapter 9, and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding manna and and Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tablets of the covenant. What is this Ark of the Covenant? Well, we know that it's that very special thing that in the movies <laughs> is the all and all under, underestimated, over-expected um, prize of all prizes. Well, this is what it is. The Ark of the Covenant was a, was a chest of sorts. It was made of acacia wood, and it was overlaid with gold. And in it, we find here that there was a jar of manna. What is manna? Manna is the bread from heaven that God gave to the children of Israel as they walked through uh, their journeys in the desert. It included Aaron's rod, which uh, we know... Uh, is, is a, the symbol of God's authority. It is the symbol of God's doing a new thing. It is a rod that budded. And, in other words, it's a, it's a miraculous sort of uh, commemoration of God's activity among the children of Israel. And it also included the tablets on which were inscribed the Ten Commandments. The law of God that he gave to his people to enable them to live in such a way that would honor him and also protect them. Above it, verse 5, above it were cherubim of uh, of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot speak in detail. Well, I'm going to unpack a little bit of detail for you there. Now, what are cherubim? Cherubim are angelic beings. And these were, these were sculptures um, built out of hammered gold. And they were on top of 
the mercy seat. Now, what is the mercy seat? Well, the mercy seat is a, basically a lid that fit perfectly over this chest known as the Ark of the Covenant. And this lid was covered, uh, overshadowed, so, so the scripture says, overshadowed by wings of these cherubim. The mercy seat, that's an interesting, interesting term. The reason it's called the mercy seat is because once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come into this holy of holy places where God's presence dwelt, and he would give, he would bring with him blood from sacrificed animals. The reason for that is because Jesus uh, reveals to us, and in the scripture we know that the, the price of our sin is a life. The wages of sin is death, so the apostle Paul writes. So here, even in the Old Testament, we see the practice of the covering of sin with blood, a life exchanged for a life. And once a year, the high priest would go into this holy place where no other man could go. The reason is because God could not be in the presence of sin. Man cannot stand in the presence of holiness. Therefore, there is a veil. We understand the veil to be that which separates, that which uh, is, a, is a barrier between two, for protections. And it is such a, uh, um, an important thing that that separation should take place that even this once a year experience of the high priest going into the Holy of Holies through this veil, The, uh, the other priest would tie a, a rope around his leg just in case if he got struck dead, they'd be able to pull him out. Yeah. It was that serious. When, they, when the high priest brought the blood in, he dripped the blood on the top of the mercy seat, which is the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And there God delivered forgiveness, not only for the sin of the high priest, but the sin of all of Israel. Let's read on a little further. Verse six, now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So what does it mean for us to enter the holy of holies, that holy place where God dwells? Back in chapter 10, that is the big question here in verse 19. I have to ask, have you, have you ever experienced being in a holy place? Having a sense that you are in God's presence and there is a sacredness, an absolute sacredness about that moment? 
Perhaps you've experienced that being with someone who passes from this life to the next, the moment of death. There is a sense that there, that moment is sacred, unlike any other, and you experience God's presence. Maybe it was at the end of a season of your life where you, you knew that everything was going to be different from here on forward. Maybe it was a time when you became confronted with your own limitations in a way that you could not deny. Very often we come face to face with our own frailty, our own failures and our fears and everything else, everything else fades into the background and we stand there paralyzed, not knowing what to do. The prophet Isaiah had an experience like this. Chapter six of, of his record of what happened reveals to us that moment. He writes, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, woe is me. Woe is me because I am a man of unclean lips and I am ruined. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is precisely where Brett found himself earlier this week. In that sacred place, confronted with the sacred call of God and the weight of God's holiness. And finding himself at the end of himself confronting the truth of who God is and who he is. God often takes people there when he is at work deep, deep inside them to bring about a change of direction, a change of conviction. And the only, the only possible response is surrender. And it's a sacred, sacred place because God lives there. God is taking us on that very same journey. He's taking us to that sacred place. I'm sure there's a, a wide variety of thoughts and feelings in this place right now. We're all asking, what's next? 
feeling unsettled and perhaps fearful because we don't know what's ahead. This is a place where God lives. This is a place of surrender. And I'd like to encourage you this morning to lean into that sacred space. Lean into it and ask God to reveal himself to you. Chances are he's talking or he's taking us all to a place where our convictions, our assumptions, our preconceived notions of of how God works will all be challenged. And we will be moved simply to surrender. Back in verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now, what does it mean to enter by the blood of Jesus? It means that the blood of Jesus that that God has now received on the mercy seat. That place of atonement. Now, here's another big word that we don't use in our everyday language. Atonement is, is an old English word, uh, an Anglo-Saxon word that simply means if you, if you actually stretch the word out, at one meant. That place of being at one. It presupposes that perhaps we're not at one. It presupposes that there's some separation. And this place of the mercy seat is the place where God brings us back into unity with himself. The word is associated very often with reconciliation and forgiveness. The whole whole intention of God in bringing us to this holy place into his presence is to reestablish his relationship with us and our relationship with him, to make us one with him. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. We have what we know is a high priestly prayer there. And Jesus prayed himself that we would be one with him even as he is one with the Father. That's, I know that's a big, big concept that we can't completely get our hands around. But the, it, the reason for that is because it is a sacred relationship. It can only happen by making it possible for us to enter into his holiness by making what is wrong with us right. It can only happen by making what's wrong with us right. Dealing with our sin, atoning for our sin, paying the debt of our sin. And the debt, very honestly, is death. But Jesus paid that debt for us. He sacrificed his life for us. And it's his blood that is sprinkled on the mercy seat so that we come So when we come to the end of ourselves, we're not destroyed. Rather, rather we are saved. 
atoned for, made one with him again. Back in Isaiah chapter 6, we read the continuation of his encounter. There we read, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Therefore, brethren, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, a new and a living way. You see, Jesus instituted a living way to enter into that holy, sacred place. Previously, the only way to enter that holy place was through the blood, the death of an animal. But Jesus establishes a living way by the fact that he died, but he also rose again and he lives forever and ever. Romans chapter 5 Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were, we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life. And the word reconcile here is, is, is not what we typically think of. I, when I hear the word reconcile, I think of kissing and making it, making it up together, you know, getting back together. But the word reconcile here is, speaks of the adding up the tallying up of, of numbers, if you will. So on our spreadsheet, we have this list of sins, and it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. For this to end well, the sum has to be zero. So what we have here, reconciliation means that God in all his goodness in providing Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin says to us, all of your sin is taken care of by the blood of Jesus. And the total at the bottom, the sum is zero. Now, that's what reconciliation means. But he also uses the word salvation in that sentence. Salvation is both the payment and the living of a new life in the power of the resurrection. The payment 
uh, for our sin and also the living of a brand new life is what salvation means. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes this beautiful prayer. Pastor Brett included it in his, in his letter to us. There he writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward we who believe? These are in accordance with the working of his strength, of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Hope, inheritance, power, all in accordance with the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 20, by a new and living way, a new and living way. Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. We sang about it earlier, right? I believe you are the way, the truth, and the life. In John 14, Jesus responds to his disciples as he is talking with them about how, how he must go to the cross. And they don't know what's ahead, ahead but he is, he is speaking to them about that. He says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. And Thomas, good old Thomas, says to him, well, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going, and we, so how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. This new and living way. The way to what? Well, the way to enter into this holy place where God lives. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us, let us draw near, near to that holy place where God lives where God lives and meets us and calls us to be at one with him. With a sincere heart. I have to tell you, that's really the only way that can happen. It's not something you can fake. It has to be in utter honesty and sincerity that we enter into that place. And we enter in in full assurance of faith. This call to draw near to God. And the way we've been talking about it 
we confront the, the reality of who we are in our own depravity. And, and it's a place that, that takes us to this honest place of, of fear and eventually surrender because that's the only thing we can do. I have to say that we, when we face these holy moments, when we come face to face with our own frailty and failures and fears, everything else fades away and you're there alone. But these moments in our lives, quite honestly, we see them coming and very often we stiff arm them and we say, not now, not here, not this way, God. Very often we do that by denial. We say, no, that's, not, that's really not the way it is, God. I'm really not in that condition. We just deny it. Or we say, it doesn't matter. We just dismiss it. It doesn't matter, God. I'm, I'm, I'm saved and it doesn't matter how my life is lived because I'm saved and I'm secure. And we dismiss that moment at which God would call us to come face to face with our own depravity. Sometimes, sometimes we stiff arm those moments with delusion. And we, we stand in opposition to what really is right there in front of us. And we just say, no, no, that's not the way it is. It's not the way it is. And we live in delusion. When we do that, we only postpone the inevitable if we really belong to God. If we are really his children. You see, if we are his children, if we really belong to him, he is going to pursue us. Jesus says in Luke 15, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost? Remember, this is his sheep. He goes after which one is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Glory be to God. If we are his children, God will pursue us. If we are his children, God will discipline us. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers then you're illegitimate children and not sons. We don't need to fear 
drawing near to God. We can do so in the full assurance of faith. That's why, that's why the writer says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. The confession of our hope is our testimony of assurance that one day, one day our at-one-ment with God will be complete for we, we will see him face to face just as he is and know him fully just as we are fully known. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, toward the end of that chapter, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully just as I have been fully known. So why, why hold on to that hope? Because he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Uh, what promise? Can we be here till four o'clock? Because it would take that long for us to talk about all the promises of God. Those promises are certain. I'd like to just remind you of a few. He loves you unconditionally. We sang about it earlier. Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future nor powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. His love for you and I is unconditional. He also watches over us and protects us. The psalmist write, the Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guide your going in and your, your, uh, your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. And God has good, I have to say really, good plans. For us. Jeremiah 29 11 is familiar to many of us. There the Lord says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. You can count on this as well that God has promised to help you to help us. Isaiah records, do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And God is faithful to fulfill every single one of his promises. If we would do a popcorn style type quiz right here, right now, 
And you would look back in the times in your life when you can say, God was faithful. God was faithful here and there and over here and back there. And I know he'll be faithful out here. We'd be here till four o'clock. He is faithful. It is born in the testimony of his saints. It is born in the record of his word. He is faithful. So the writer of Hebrews concludes this little section this way. He says, then let us consider, let us consider, verse 24, how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Folks, this, this is our call. Right now, in this season, this right here is our call. Think about how you can stir one another up to love each other and to do good to one another. Think about it. I have to tell you that the word stir right here means to agitate. To agitate. How do we stir one another up to love one another, to do good to one another? And do not neglect coming together. Yes, all the more, even now, as God is at work among us, to draw us near to him. Especially now, as we press into our future together, certain of his abiding presence and his invitation to enter that holy place, his personal sacred space where we will experience being at one with him. I don't know if God has been speaking to you today or not. But I'd like for us to take this moment right now to stir one another up. If God's been speaking to you very personally this morning, with the lights on in full view, would you stand? Now, this is not an invitation for everybody to stand. But if God has been speaking to you, would you stand? Look around you. These are your agitators. And it is our call together to really work at that, to stir one another up, to love, to do good. And to be together as often as we can be. Let's pray together.
Lord, we thank you for your very personal word to us today. We thank you as well that that word is an invitation to enter into this sacred space where we are honestly confronted with our own limits and we encounter you, the holy, almighty God. And in that space, Lord, we can do nothing but surrender to you. How blessed we are, Lord, that we do not have to fear coming into that sacred space. We do not have to hold it away from us as though we would be destroyed because, Lord Jesus, it is your death that makes it possible for us to be there. And it is your life that enables us to live the fullness of your salvation. How blessed we are, Lord, that you have, you have seen fit to draw us to yourself, even in this way. We love you with our whole hearts, and we want our lives, Lord, to reflect that truth. We thank you, Lord, that this day we have the opportunity to share in this sacred meal, this which we call communion. And it's fitting that we call it that, Lord, because it, it speaks of our oneness with you. It only happens because of your sacrifice and your resurrection. So today, Lord, we receive these elements as your, your blessed remembrance. And we pray that you would move among us even as we share this meal together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.